chapter 27, verses 1 through 21. You shall make the altar of acacia wood five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar will be square and its height shall be three cubits. And you shall make horns for it on its four corners. Its horns shall be one piece with it and you shall overlay it with bronze. You shall make pots for it to receive its ashes, and shovels, and basins, and forks, and fire pans. You shall make all its utensils of bronze. You should also make for it a grating, a network of bronze, and on the net you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. And you shall set under the ledge of the altar so that the net extends halfway down the altar. And you shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. And the poles shall be put through the rings so that the poles are on the two sides of the altar when it is carried. You shall make it hollow with boards as it has been shown to you on the mountain, so shall it be made. Verse 9. You shall take the court of the tabernacle. On the south side of the court have these hangings, have hangings of fine twined linen and a hundred cubits long for one side. Its twenty pillars and its twenty bases shall be of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and the fillets shall be of silver. And likewise for its length and on the north side there shall be hangings a hundred cubits long its pillars 20 and their bases 20 of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver. And for the breadth of the court on the west side, there shall be hangings for its 50 cubits with 10 pillars and 10 bases. The breadth of the court on the front to the east shall be 50 cubits. The hangings on the one side of the gate shall be 15 cubits with their three pillars and three bases. On the other side, the hangings shall be 15 cubits with their three pillars and their three bases. For the gate of the court, shall, there shall be a screen 20 cubits long of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen embroidered with needlework. It shall have four pillars and with them four bases. All the pillars around the court shall be filled with silver their hooks shall be of silver, and their bases of bronze. The length of the court shall be a hundred cubits, the breadth fifty, the height five cubits, with hangings of fine twined linen and bases of bronze. All the utensils of the tabernacle for every use, and all its pegs, and all the pegs of the court, shall be of bronze. Blessed be the reading. Let's pray. Almighty God, as we come to your word, and it's oftentimes for us, Lord, an encouragement, but your word sometimes is confusing. It's foreign to us. 
It's coming to us from such a different place and such a different time that we need help. God, I pray that the words I've prepared might um, shed light, be helpful, connect the dots. But Lord, it would only be a good sermon. It would only be a useful message if it might be such that it draws us more and more and closer and closer to your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray to that end in his name. Amen. The Bible is one unified story revealing God's plan to redeem his people and restore creation for his glory. That's it. You could write that on every page of Scripture and see how that unfolds. That the triune creator God inspired Holy Scripture to be written in order to reveal himself to humanity. This is a, a, literally, a literary anthology, if you will, of 66 books. Includes all kinds of different genres of, of writing. So there's history, there's law, there's poetry, there's prophecy, words of of prophecy uh, to the nation of Israel, first and foremost, but then implications to all of the nations. Prophecy for the time it was written, and then shooting forth to the distant future, and even now and beyond. And then when we get to the New Testament, there's a whole new genre of writing called gospel, this powerful means of, of proclaiming almost in a form of, of, of great urgency, the biography of Jesus. And then we have the, the other letters of the New Testament, these formal, for, uh, formal letters to the early church. And then still even more prophecy of looking to the end times. All written by 40 inspired authors over a period some odd 1,500 years. And yet it has one unifying message. The Bible is the most powerful, life-giving book ever written. And we believe that the Bible is God's word. And believing that, we believe it must be God's intention for us to not only read it and study it, but to understand what that message is. So as we study God's word together, what we're trying to do each Sunday at Nielsville and, and in our classes and small groups during the week, but especially I want to talk about my time that I have with you each week that I look forward to, is we're trying to connect the dots. The, the children in the sanctuary have worship bags, and I'm sure there are coloring pages, and there might be those old connect the dots. You remember when you were a child, you connect the dots, and, and a picture would emerge. Well, that's what we're trying to do. God's Word... Connect, connects the dots from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden where everything was perfect and paradise. Through this time that we're looking at today, this mobile sanctuary called the Tabernacle in the book of Exodus, a special place where God's presence was beheld and his glory was, was present to the people. And then on through the story it goes, this desire that people have to go their own way, and yet God's desire to come near them, to heal them, to be present to them, and to be in right relationship. And the greatest manifestation of God's presence and God's glory in Christ, his son, in his life, 
death, his resurrection, and let's not forget his ascension. When he went to heaven where he now rules and the promise of the coming of the new heavens and earth. These are all the dots that we connect. So when we have Arun read this beautiful passage, and he could read the, the phone book, and it would sound beautiful. Uh, but it is confusing and difficult. Uh, imagine that these, again, are connecting the dots to the larger story. Neilsville, as we worship together, my trust in God's word is greater my desire to understand God's truth is richer. I look forward to going back to work every Monday morning to start thinking about the scripture that we'll be studying together the following Sunday. And what's amazing is as ancient as these words are, they come alive. There's real insight. They are the living word of God and his spirit is present even now. I pray that he has a word for you. Neilsville has always been and will always be a Christ-centered and Bible-based church. And so one of our ministry goals is that we might see the level of biblical literacy rise. Rise in our intergenerational church. And I'm not talking about Sunday school answers that you could name uh, all of uh, King David's uh, children or, or, or what have you. That that's, has its place. But the literal understanding, the literary work of God's word, that would be rich and deep and impactful, not only for you personally and for your families, but for us as a church family in the pursuit of sharing God's good news with all people. So let's try to connect some of those dots. Can we do that? Let's look at this text in, in, in God's word. And I invite you to open your bulletin. There's an image there of what this mobile sanctuary, the tabernacle, may have looked like. We're traveling back to ancient times. Uh, a while after the defeat of Egypt, the, the greatest superpower in the ancient world, the successful rescue mission out of slavery is credited in the book of Exodus to the power and character of God. The almighty God who remembers his promises, punishes sin, and forgives those who seek his forgiveness. And now we've zoomed into this design that the Lord God gives to Moses on Mount Sinai of what this mobile tabernacle will look like. The ancient Israelites believed it was the very presence where heaven and earth met. And God's covenant love and, and his promises for the people were confirmed. And so as we look at this passage, there's really three things that are being described. There's the bronze altar, verses 1 to 8. Uh, the courtyard, verses 9 to 19. And then Arun didn't read those last two verses. You can see verse 20 and 21 about the collection of pure olive oil to light the lamp. Remember the, the golden lampstand we talked about a few weeks ago? That oil that would be collected so that the priest could have the fire burning day and night as a symbol of this tree of life that gives the light to the world. Let's talk about the bronze altar. Andy, fantastic job with the children. We're going to stop right there because he kind of nailed it. Uh, he's going to work me out, out of a job here if he keeps doing so well, explaining things so straightforward. The bronze altar would have been the very first thing you saw when you went into the courtyard. It was seven feet wide and four feet high, 
made of wood overlaid with bronze and used for burnt offerings and sacrifices. Well, why bronze? Well, this is the Bronze Age. Bronze is more heat-resistant than gold. Remember, gold was throughout inside of the, the tent, inside those two rooms, the most holy place, the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place, uh, fit for royalty, for a king. That would be the place where all that wonderful pure gold would be kept. But outside, it was bronze. And it's shaped with four horns, a horn on, on each corner. We're not exactly sure what those horns represented. It certainly could have been a place to tie up the animals. There is reference that it was a symbol of refuge. Remember when you were a child and you'd play tag and, and maybe uh, mom's uh, skirt was home base and safe and so you couldn't be tagged? Well, there are stories, one in 1 Kings where David's sons, actually there's two different stories, uh, run to uh, the altar and grab hold of one of those horns uh, to seek refuge from their half-brother Solomon. And the altar also, we read, uh, had these uh, rings and poles again so that it could be moved on their journey through the wilderness. That's verses 1 to 8. 9 to 19, this longer description of the uh, courtyard that surrounded the tent and the altar and also this bronze uh, basin that was used for ceremonial washing and purification. The surrounding fence of fine linen curtains uh, would stand about seven and a half feet tall. And the instructions, though, that I want us to pay particular attention to, look at verse 13. I know we can get lost in all the details, but look at verse 13. It says the entrance, there's only one entrance to the space, was in the east. Remember we've said that this tabernacle was to remind the people as they entered in and as they worshipped the Lord and as they were taught of what was happening inside the tent, it was to remind them of the Garden of Eden and of paradise, a time and place where Adam and Eve were in perfect union with God. And so coming into this place through the east would remind everyone, oh, Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden through the east, east of the garden. And so again, these, these symbols would have deep, profound meaning. We are being invited back in, back into right relationship with Almighty God. And then the first thing they see is this altar. And then the oil collected. So how is Exodus 27 relevant to the big questions of life? The, the big meta-narrative of the Bible. We say this is some of the dots. Can we connect some of the dots and how might it be relevant? When God gave Moses, Moses the designs for the tabernacle, as we've already said, it was a reminder to the people of the beautiful relationship lost in the fall, in paradise. And it was an image to the people in living color of beautiful uh, reds, purples, and, and all the rest that, that God was going to restore not only his people, but all of creation. That God was going to great lengths to redeem his rebellious people, rescuing them out of Egypt and declaring to them, I will be your God, 
and you will be my people. And even more than that, that God was promising to restore for himself and his glory all of creation. And this all points to the life, death, and resurrection and good news of Jesus Christ. Now we know the good news, but what about the bad news? There's certainly plenty of it in the world today. There's wars and rumors of wars, pollution, injustice, and conflict. We all know things in the world are pretty messed up. Not only are things messed up in the world, but our lives are not the way they ought to be. We take a little stock in ourselves and we think about what's really going on in your life and in mine. Scratch the surface of the life and near of your neighbors, and what do we find? We find ourselves in conflict, in our families, in our closest relationships, and there are divisions in our society. There are things that we carry around inside, hard memories, resentments, anger, even guilt inside ourselves. With all of our amazing technological breakthroughs of controlling uh, so many things in this world, We've yet to figure out how to control what's happening in the human heart and soul. People have a sense that something's gone wrong in the world. That the world isn't the way it's supposed to be. Well, we're right. The Bible teaches that the way things are now is not the way God created them to be. God intended a world of peace and beauty, a world of meaningful relationships and satisfying work. Most of all, the Bible teaches God created us to be in close relationship with himself and with each other and with the creation around us. And that's why we know things aren't the way they're supposed to be. That we were created for something greater and better than this. The problem is we humans have always thought we could do a better job of being in charge than God. That's that's cutting to the chase. In a sense, what I've said for many years and have shown to be true, we substitute the one true God with fake gods, with artificial gods. I used to call it sweet and low gods because it's not the real thing. God's made in our image what we could palate what we could accept, because there's so many things that are mysterious about God, so many things that are holy about God that we don't understand something, well, we'll just create it in our own image. We've tried to run our lives without worrying too much about him. For millennia, mankind has tried to make God in our own image. Uh, In the Enlightenment, the questioning of God's even existence became extremely popular. And nowadays, more and more people think everything is relative to one's personal experience. There's no such thing as ultimate reality or truth or moral absolutes. It's up to the individual to define it. What is the nature of reality? Maybe we're all living in our own alternate universe. By substituting ourselves for God, listen, we also separate ourselves from God. 
And the result is the world around us. And it's not a pretty picture. But God is so good and so holy and so beautiful that somehow the evil and the mess in the world and in us needs to be dealt with before we can experience the life the way it was created to be. So how is evil that, that pollutes so much of the world to be dealt with and gotten rid of once and for all? Now, some people might say, well, if God is so good and so powerful, why doesn't he just get rid of evil once and for all and all the world just wipe it clean? That's a fair question. But the reality is what the Bible teaches us and what we know to be true, there is so much evil in the world and some of it is in us. It's on our hands too. We've all contributed to the pollution the Bible calls sin. See how the Bible begins to connect the dots for us. The Bible says God is so good that not only will he get rid of evil out of the world and restore creation, he will do it without destroying all of humanity. But how? Right here in our text, in the early part of the big story of the Bible, we're introduced to the practice of animal sacrifice, which I know sounds kind of weird, but for the Israelites, it was a very powerful symbol of God's justice and peace. God allowed these animals, the animal's life, to become a substitute, symbolically removing the sins of the people. The Bible calls this atonement, which means to, to cover over, to make amends for the wrong, for a wrong or injury. And so, the priest would symbolically impute the polluted sins of the people onto the animal. And there are many different forms of sacrifices, and we're not going to get into all of the, the different sacrifices, but this is the most important, critical one to understand. This one that was a sacrifice to atone for sin. The blood that was collected represented life, and it was sprinkled in the temple symbolizing how God is cleaning away the consequences of sin in that community. And the Bible calls this process purification. And so the people of Israel, the Israelites encamped, they're out there in the wilderness, but later the, the nation itself became a clean space where God and his people could live together in peace. And this ritual made things right between Israel and God. And it was a powerful means of worship. And it was repeated over and over and over again. Its intention was to experience God's goodness and his grace and his blessing, not only for these people, but for, for all the nations. But the people began to twist it into religion adding rules upon rules of how it would be used and how it would be done and for whom it was meant to benefit. See, Israel did not keep up their end of the covenant for long. Their worship was marred by their idolatry, replacing the one true God for substitutes 
And so we read in the pages of Scripture, generation after generation, sin upon sin, handed down from father to father and generation after generation. And then we read the prophet Isaiah, who opens his book saying, this ongoing sacrifices no longer are going to mean what they once meant before the living God. Because, he says, you continue in your sin. You come and you worship Almighty God and you make these sacrifices and then you go right back to living a way that does not honor your God. And Isaiah lists the sins of the people. Namely, not caring for the poor, not glorifying God, not pursuing holiness. Now, Isaiah also prophesied that one day a new king in the line of David would come and deal with evil once and for all. And he prophesied that this king would be a suffering servant who would die for the sins committed by his own people and his life would be offered as a sacrifice of atonement and purification. Do you see the dots? Jesus connected the dots. Jesus of Nazareth, you must accept, is either who he says he is, truly the Lord, or he was lying, or he was not altogether there, because this Jesus of Nazareth, 2,000 years ago, began his public ministry in a worship service by reading the very words from Isaiah and boldly declaring that he himself was the fulfillment of the prophecy, the king of Israel who would suffer. For a long time, three years, his closest followers didn't understand what form of suffering that would mean on the cross. Jesus used Isaiah's own words when he said, I have come to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. That word ransom is the same word to mean atonement. And so throughout the New Testament, these inspired authors were connecting the dots to show that Jesus' death was the atoning sacrifice for the world and that his resurrection was proof positive that all of God's promises all the way back to the beginning were coming true, were yes in him, that there could be restoration and there could be healing for all of creation through Christ. And so he sacrificed himself. The blood of Jesus symbolizes his life-giving power to raise from the dead, to forgive, to heal, to restore. That's the power in Jesus' blood. And we partake in that when we remember him and his sacrifice in Holy Communion. This is not an altar. This is a table. Uh, Hebrews 13.10 says the altar is in heaven. But we come and we remember his atoning sacrifice. What happens at baptism? When we go down into the water and we come up, we are purified. The waters of baptism, not only sprinkled, what do I say on, on baptism Sundays? That the Holy Spirit pours out and touches every area of our life. And the inauguration of God's kingdom on earth. He offers life to anyone 
who will accept his perfect sacrifice and his offer to follow him, which means dying to our old ways and being empowered to a new life in Christ. And what that means is experiencing his glory. And let me tell you what glory means in the Bible does not mean a happy, happy day of retirement. It means to share in his sufferings. It means to understand that discipleship is often very costly. But it's, it's to be united to Christ in this life, in this wilderness, to know he promises never to leave you nor forsake you. To say that everything else is taken away, but I have Christ, and Christ is all I need. The first thing the people saw when they entered the courtyard was the bronze altar. Now Jesus is our altar. As his people, we share in his raised from the dead life, the victory won, and we're led to work for him and suffer for his people and for the sake of the world. I want to share with you quickly five implications of what this all means. So if you've checked out, check back in. Forgive me five more minutes. Number one, our access to God and to the new life is only by virtue of the precious blood of Christ. And so, rest assured that you are already covered and cleansed if you have taken hold of him by faith. Number two, there is great benefit in contemplating on the death of Christ. We don't want to be macabre. We, we're not, we don't have a crucifix. The cross is empty for he has risen. But there is great benefit, namely freedom from guilt. See what it cost him to win you back. There's no room for guilt or shame or for those false words of the evil one to creep back in, to say that you're not worthy. It'll change your worldview and people around you. Number three, by his sacrifice, we have assurance whenever we come to him in prayer. Never give up hope. Never give up hope. Never give up hope for someone who is far from God. Never stop praying for his or her behalf. For our hope is in the Savior of the world. It's not for you or anyone to say, she's too far gone. Well, they're not really worth it. They are worth it, and they're not too far gone. So never give up praying, for he is the Savior of the world, and his offer is still good. Number four, every time I'm tempted to sin, what's happening? What am I doing? I'm being asked to hand over to some foreign force a little bit of my new God-given life power that was bought by the precious blood of Christ. And so I have to think, is it worth it? Is it worth giving that over and, and, and messing up my relationship with God and his influence in my life, in every area of my life? It's not. It's not. So draw closer to him. Fifth and finally, by his sacrifice, by his sacrifice, anything you offer as a sacrifice to the Lord, big or small, is a form of spiritual worship. Service rendered to God in the name of his Son is accepted, welcomed, and is life as it ought to be. You think, well, what good can I do? I can't prepare a sermon and preach on Sunday 
I'm so happy you don't because it's, it takes a lot of time and it's fine. You've got better things to do. We've got a whole world to reach with the good news of Christ. We have neighbors in need. We have people that need to know God's love. Each and every one of you has a calling from the Lord. And if you are willing to make a sacrifice of your time, of your talents, your life experiences, and yes, even of that treasure in your pocket, God promises to honor it. and He will be glorified in us and we will be most incredibly satisfied in him. Let's pray. Well, Lord, connect the dots for us in your word. Grant us, we pray, entrance into your presence by the sacrifice of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Dear God, we thank you for his single sacrifice for sins. And that now your word says, Hebrews 10, 12, that he has now sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in, on their hearts and write them on their minds. Oh God, write your law on our heart and on our minds. For then you add, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds, deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Hallelujah. Amen.